You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Cesarean section is the most common operative procedure that women undergo in the United States today. From 1990 to 1999, the national cesarean section rate was approximately 22%, but in the last decade, a steady increase in cesarean rates have been noted as high as 30% in some areas of the country. Are there ways to reduce the incidence of cesarean delivery while ensuring the safety of maternal and neonatal health? Welcome to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Today we're being joined by Dr. James Nicholson, the Assistant Professor of Family Practice and Community Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He's also a co-author of a number of studies looking at reducing the incidence of operative delivery by preventive induction of labor known as AMOR-IPAT, or the active management of risk in pregnancy at term. Welcome, Dr. Nicholson. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So why do you think the C-section rate has risen so much in the last 10 years? Well, there are a variety of factors. It's really a multifactorial issue. I think one has to do with a changing population. So there's more and more women who are delaying childbirth um, into their later years. There's a higher rate of obesity in our population. But I think also driving it has to do with medical legal issues and physicians being concerned about poor outcomes. So they're less likely to tolerate troubles during labor. Um, and then, of course, with more section, the higher primary section rate comes a higher secondary section rate with fewer and fewer physicians being willing to do VBAC or vaginal birth after cesarean delivery. So it's kind of a snowball effect where we're having a higher primary cesarean delivery rate and then a higher secondary cesarean delivery rate also. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that, um, you know, a few years ago in the New England Journal, when the article came out talking about uterine rupture rates being double what we thought they were in VBAC, everyone took a complete step backward, um, though our personal rates had not been anything like what had been reported. You know, what's interesting with all that in mind is, do you think the higher section rate really has reduced medical legal situations or improve maternal and fetal morbidity and mortality? Well, I think there's a broader question, which is, has it improved maternal or fetal as well as maternal outcomes? And I think probably the answer to that is it has not. For example, one of the most concerning things I see is that the actual U.S. maternal mortality rate is actually rising. So while it was seven women per 100,000 death rate back in 1998, now it's risen up through the 13 and now up to 15 out of 100,000. And I would love to to change that answer if I could. The bottom line is that the maternal mortality rate in our country, although it's still quite low, has increased fairly significantly over the past five years. Along with that is I think our term birth uh, NICU or neonatal intensive care unit admission rate probably has gone up, although that's a statistic that's very hard to pull out of the uh, preterm NICU admission rate. But lastly, the the, uh, medical liability situation I don't think has improved a whole lot, even though we're doing more cesareans. So we're using this procedure more and more, but I'm not sure that we're seeing better outcomes as a result. I think probably we're seeing worse outcomes. I think I totally agree. Certainly not the first cesarean section, but the second is where you really start to have an increase in maternal risk um, reporting from that. Well, you know, traditional protocols in the OBGYN community have always encouraged induction of labor when it is an absolute medical necessity because we felt that induction of labor would increase the cesarean risk for a patient. Correct. And it seems like the tenets of your plan are the opposite of that. That's right. Can you explain a little bit why? Sure. So it's a it's a pretty classic case of confounding by indication in that if inductions are saved for only those cases where there's major problems, for example, significant post or high blood pressure or 
a fetus that looks unusually large, if those are the cases where induction of labor is being used, and usually in this day and age, most people only do inductions when there is an ACOG indication. If you compare those cases to cases where labor develops more naturally and somewhat earlier in the term period, then the induction cases will always have worse outcomes than the spontaneous labor cases. But the question that I've raised is, is is it the induction itself or is it the reason that the induction was necessary that caused the worst outcomes in the induced group? And I can, you know, point out a hundred different studies where they've shown that induction is linked with higher cesarean delivery rates. But again, all those studies have involved women with increased risk for cesarean delivery before the induction even started. Mm -hmm. So what I do, which is different, is to use preventive induction in what I call the optimal time of delivery before problems develop. And in that setting, it seems that induction or a higher use of induction is actually linked with lower C-section rates and better other outcomes in, in childbirth. So Dr. Nicholson, how do you decide what the risk profile is for a patient when you're looking at your AMOR iPad study? Well, Basically, it comes straight off the problem list that most physicians keep on their patients. So the the risk factors that women have for cesarean delivery and other problems usually is in the chart in a specific place. But the, the risk scoring sheet is based on the two most common reasons for primary cesarean delivery, which is number one, cephalopelvic disproportion or baby that's too large to fit through the pelvis, and number two, uteroplacental insufficiency where the placenta doesn't support the baby during labor and, and there's fetal intolerance and then a C-section. So the two risk categories I use in my scoring sheet to determine the optimal time of delivery. So for example, for uteroplacental factors, things like chronic hypertension, uh, sickle cell trait, cigarette abuse, uh, advanced maternal age, and anemia, all of those risk factors have an odds ratio for their impact on cesarean delivery risk. Mm-hmm. And I convert those odds ratios into a number of days using a, a uh, conversion formula that I developed about six years ago. And then you can take any lady um, from your practice and add up her number of days based on her risk profile in the uteroplacental category. You get a number of days and you subtract that number of days from 41 weeks, zero days gestation, and you get what is the upper limit of the optimal time of delivery for the placental group. Mm-hmm. So it might be 38 weeks and six days, for example. Based so on if you were going to look at a patient in your practice, can you just give us an example of one patient and how sure. that works out? Sure. So let's say we have a patient who comes in for her first visit. She is five foot one inches tall. She already weighs 200 pounds. And with her previous baby, she had a vacuum delivery for a baby that was somewhat large, let's say eight pounds. That gives her two days for her elevated BMI. It gives her six days for her short stature. Um, And it gives her nine days for her previous vacuum delivery, which gives a total of 17 days. And if if you subtract that from 41 days, that would give you 38 weeks and four days for her upper limit of the optimal time of delivery. And in this multiparous woman, I would want her delivering by 38 and four. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that um, makes more sense. It makes it very easy to sure. see. Sure. If the same lady had, for example, cigarette abuse and sickle cell trait, that would give her two days plus three days, which is five days. So her uteroplacental optimal time would be 40 weeks and two days, but we would pick the lower of the two groups, so the 38 weeks and four days time. So you always pick the lower of the two groups because you want to get the baby out before one of those two risk group is going to be negatively impacting the delivery. 
Okay, so if patients have multiple risk factors, you take the one that gives you the earliest delivery date. Correct. Okay, two right, excellent. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and we're speaking to Dr. James Nicholson, and we're talking about some advantages of elective preventive labor induction for patients to reduce the cesarean section risk. So, Dr. Nicholson, we were talking about the risk factors you look at, and in the study that you had originally um, done, it looks like you've combined both first-time parents as well as second- or third-time parents in the same risk factor criteria. Is that true? Yes. Okay. And, you know, typically in the obstetrical community, we feel the risk of induction in a patient who's had a baby already vaginally is much less than inducing someone who's a nulligravid patient. So how do you attribute both of those people being in the same study? Well, it had to do with the fact that the way the study was developed, which was when I came to University of Pennsylvania, we were allowed to do a study of uh, women in the practice that I uh, was working in. And basically, in order to get a study that was large enough to develop results on, we included both first birth moms and moms that had babies before. Within the study, there clearly was a difference in cesarean rate reduction in the first birth moms and the multiparous moms, but both were significant reductions. So, for example, the the first birth moms had a, well, they just had a much lower section rate. They don't have that information right here in mm-hmm. front of me. My, my other question was that when in, in looking at this, and it wasn't clear when I was reviewing the study, if a patient had a Bishop score less than five, did you find that that affected your outcome for successful vaginal delivery? Yes. And traditionally, an unripened cervix has been a major impediment to induction of labor. However, about 25 years ago, we started to develop a variety of methods to ripen a cervix prior to um, induction of labor. The main group has been prostaglandin medications, prostaglandin E1 and prostaglandin E2, but there have also been mechanical methods like Foley bulb insertion and laminaria and other things that ripen the cervix. These medications, specifically the prostaglandins, have been essential in the research I'm doing in that many women in the first birth category need to have their cervix ripen prior to induction. And I would not have been able to do what I've done without the the use of these medications. So it's an essential piece. But having that piece available, in my mind, isn't being utilized as much as we could to help moms get into labor a little earlier and safer. What do you think the risk of doing this um, active management of full-term patients uh, for induction are? Well, th- there, are, there are probably two theoretical risks, and they're risks that, that are continuing to be talked about and we continue to be concerned about. But interestingly, we don't see that these risks have occurred as, as people have been concerned about. The first is that there's a concern that an induction of labor and intervention into pregnancy will increase the risk of not only cesarean delivery, but other maternal outcomes such as excessive bleeding or much longer hospital stay. And what we found is actually the use of this active management regimen has actually lowered the C-section rate and significantly improved other maternal outcomes. The second risk that continues to be talked about is that significant numbers of women, especially with increased risk profiles, end up being induced in the 38th week of pregnancy. And this is a, a gestational age that the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology believes is a relatively dangerous area for neonates in terms of fetal lung immaturity. So the recommendation is if you're going to induce before 39 weeks, zero days, you, that a woman should have an amniocentesis to confirm fetal lung maturity. We don't do the amniocentesis in this protocol because we ensure that the dates are correct with an ultrasound. We already talked about that. But in women that I've taken care of, when women have been induced in the 38th week for risk uh, profiles that warrant that, their babies actually have done 
quite well with very low neonatal intensive care unit admission rates. So there, uh, the, the incidence of fetal lung immaturity at that stage has not been very high for you at all? It's been quite low. And in fact, some of the recent research done by others is showing that actually if you let pregnancies go beyond the due date, that the risk of neonatal intensive care unit starts to increase for other reasons, such as meconium aspiration, such as infection, such as complicated deliveries with shoulder dystocias and that kind of thing. Thanks to Dr. Nicholson, who's been with us as our guest, and we've been discussing uh, in preventive induction of labor in an effort to reduce cesarean section rate. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. You've been listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our complete library through demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor. But, you know, I saw this commercial for something called Avista, Reloxifene Hydrochloride. Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? I don't have a family history. Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, but I think for you, the benefits of Avista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no problem. Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.